Welcome to the Dr. Lori Morris podcast, where she interviews experts in health and science, sharing their expertise so you can live your healthiest life. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by Fit Vegan Coaching, the world's leading whole food plant-based body recomposition program for Gen X and baby boomers. Founded by Maxime, whose personal journey began after losing his ex-fiance to breast cancer, Fit Vegan Coaching is on a mission to disease-proof the world through the transformative power of plant-based eating and fitness. This program is the Rolls Royce of plant-based coaching, offering all-inclusive services, personalized plans, world-class accountability, lifelong support, and more. Say goodbye to the yo-yo dieting and embrace a lasting transformation that will rev up your metabolism even post-transformation. Ready to take charge of your health and vitality? Head over to fitvegan.ca, that's fitvegan.ca, and mention Dr. Lori for exclusive bonus savings when you sign up. Don't miss this opportunity to join the movement towards a healthier, fitter, and more vibrant you. Are you tired of compromising between convenience and healthy eating? Look no further. Introducing Whole Harvest, your ultimate solution for wholesome plant-based meals. Whole Harvest is redefining the way you eat. Their meals are not only delicious, but also 100% whole food plant-based without any compromise. Whole Harvest takes pride in their approach. There's no oils, no added sugars, and low sodium. Plus, they have SOS free menu items available. I recommend Whole Harvest to my patients. They need convenient and compliant meals that can be delivered to their home. At Whole Harvest, you can reimagine your favorite dishes with a plant-based flair and enjoy menu items like the All-American Burger. Harvest lasagna and soba kimchi bowl. Whole harvest meals are chef crafted and made with high quality ingredients delivered straight to your door. And guess what? They ship nationwide so you can enjoy whole food, plant based meals no matter where you are. And here's an exclusive offer just for our podcast listeners. Use the discount code PLANTS30 to receive $30 off your first order. Visit wholeharvest.com and place your order today. Again, that's wholeharvest.com. Your journey to delicious whole food plant-based eating starts here. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by The Healing Kitchen, your path to vibrant health. Immerse yourself in the transformative program guided by the combined expertise of myself, Dr. Lori Marbus, and Chef Brittany Giroudi, who has lost 70 pounds on a whole food plant-based diet. Here's what's in store for you. Virtual weekly sessions. Engage in an immersive 60-minute virtual session every single week where you'll delve into the world of wholesome plant-based goodness right from your own kitchen. Cooking with Brittany the first half hour. Unleash your inner chef as you're captivated by Chef Brittany Giroudi's culinary mastery that will delight your taste buds and nourish your body. Medical Q&A with Dr. Lori, the last half hour. Prioritize your well-being during the second half hour. I will personally address your medical inquiries, providing evidence-based insights and personalized advice, empowering you to make informed choices for your health. So join us on The Healing Kitchen to help you step into a healthier and most vibrant future. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and I'm so excited to welcome back one of my heroes, Dr. Neil Bernard. How are you today? I'm doing great, Lori. It's great to see you. 
Uh, thank you. And it was really wonderful seeing you recently at your wonderful conference that you have in Washington, D.C., um, the International Conference in Nutrition and Medicine. And I'd encourage anyone to attend that in August of every year. They already have your ticket sales for next year. So just wanted to give that plug. But I really want to jump into some common questions that I get around hormones. And I know you've written a book about this and there's some really interesting um, research that you've done. So maybe we can start with female hormones as, you know, I'm entering into my mid fifties and menopausal and all those things. And I get tons of questions from patients regarding that. Could you give me some um, ideas on, first of all, how you even ventured into writing the hormone book? And then maybe we can pull some questions from there. Sure. I, I have to tell you, this wasn't an area that I was intending to get involved in at all. Um, and it really started, it's, it's funny how you get into these things. My, my father, I have to confess, Lori, my father was um, an internist. He uh, he specialized in diabetes. That was his whole thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, I never once heard him say that anybody with diabetes ever got better. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, he, was, he would get home from work every day about 6.15 and sit down his bag. I never once heard him say, oh, I cured diabetes today. And of course, that wasn't our expectation. And his whole job was to try to make diabetes decline more slowly. So when I went to medical school, I was not the least bit interested in diabetes. And what happened was there was a foundation that asked us to help them design some trials because they were tired of getting people requesting money for a rat experiment or a mouse experiment in diabetes. And they thought, I don't want to do that. Um, how do we do diabetes better? And so I was encouraging them to study diet and to study people. And so we started working out uh, research protocols and we did our diabetes work and I've done many, many studies now and it was very successful. But anyhow, um, to get back to your question, why did we get into this and why did I write a book about it? Um, diabetes means there's something wrong with how insulin is functioning. Insulin's a hormone. And if we can, as we've learned that we can, if we can modify insulin's activity, then not only can we perhaps turn around diabetes, as you know, we, we can make type two diabetes go away, um, at, least in, at least for many people, then can we do that with other hormones? So I decided to talk about that. Um, and part of the reason I thought it was beyond insulin was one day I was sitting at my desk here and the phone rang and it was a young woman who said, Dr. Barnard, I've got uh, terrible pain. I can't get out of bed. And she had, she had cramps, menstrual cramps. And a lot of women have cramps, but for maybe one in 10, it's like off the scale, can't go to work today cramps. And as she was talking, I thought, well, what are cramps? Cramps are under the influence of estrogen, another hormone, the endometrial lining is thickening up. And maybe, maybe in her, it's thickening up too much. And so that at the end of the month, when it disintegrates and it releases prostaglandins, maybe she's getting too much of that, uh, of that effect and, 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 and having pain as a result, crampy pain. So we did a trial 20 years ago of a low-fat vegan diet because we had learned that lowering fat will reduce estrogen, increasing fiber will reduce estrogen, and it worked. Um, it it mm -hmm. greatly reduced the women's pain in this randomized trial that we did. So anyway, we started to realize we can control hormones, and then it was a natural leap to menopause because that's the other end of the reproductive window. And we had reason to believe that it, a certain dietary approach would work. And I wrote about it in this book. And I then got a call from a woman 
who read the book and said that the, the method we had described had caused her hot flashes to disappear in less than a week. And I thought, wait a minute, that's faster than I had thought. All I had, ri all I had written in this book, the, the, Your Body in Balance, um, I had said that reducing the fat, a vegan diet ought to work based epidemiologically on where we see women who don't have much hot flashes and that there would be a role for soy. And so I said to her, your hot flashes went away. She said, yeah, it was like three days. I said, really? Well, maybe four. Said, That's amazing. Um, so I said, tell me exactly what you did. Her name was Betty. And she said, I, I was totally vegan. Check, vegan. Very low in fat. Got it. Um, and I ate soybeans. And I said, how much? She said, a half a cup. What brand? Laura Brand. How did you cook them? I cooked them in an Instapot. How many minutes? 40 minutes. I wrote all this down. I said, thank you very much, hung up. And I ran into Hanna Kaliova's office. She's our director of clinical research. I said, Hanna, we've just designed our next clinical trial. So we brought in 84 women. They all had mild to severe hot flashes. And we did Betty's diet, vegan, low fat, half a cup of cooked Laura brand soybeans. Um, and we found that in a 12 week trial, the frequency of moderate to severe hot flashes diminished by 88%. Um, so the, the reason this is important is what we're talking about is hormones, insulin, estrogens, or the fluctuations of the changes in estrogen when it's kind of turning off, um, thyroid hormone, other kinds of hormones. And if we can control them, then we can control things that we had never imagined that, that we could control. And if we can do it with food, then all the side effects are going to be good ones. So that, that's, that mm. was, forgive me for that long-winded answer, Lori, but that's how it came about. No, I, I think it's wonderful that you're just like many physicians who enter the space, you were listening to patients and then that prompted you to take action and you learn more from there. I, I go down many rabbit holes <laughs> because of patients, but you kind of briefly skimmed over thyroid. So I get a lot of thyroid questions. Um, what role does a plant-based diet have in thyroid health? I have my own personal story, but what what is your what is your uh, clinical experience with people who have thyroid dysfunction? Yeah, of course, you know, there are, there are really two big areas. And, and the first one, of course, is iodine, which sort of is an issue, no, almost no matter what kind of diet you're on. Um, but that's, that's an important one, because worldwide, that's, that's a big issue. You know, here in the US, it was, I think, 1925, when the Morton Salt Company came up with iodized salt, what an idea. And so iodine deficiency wasn't such a problem anymore here in the United States. Um, but worldwide, there are a lot of people who aren't near the coastline and they're not eating seaweed, and so, which is the world's greatest source of iodine. Um, and so they're not getting the iodine their thyroid needs. And, and that's kind of job one is got to make sure that there's iodine there. And, and seaweed is a great source and iodized salt will work perfectly fine if you, know, if you don't have your seaweed salad handy. Um, but the other thing, and it's pretty clear that here in the United States, most of the thyroid disease, whether it's hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, um, it's, it's an antibody attack. Your immune system is creating antibodies that instead of attacking viruses and attacking bacteria, which is what they're supposed to be doing, they're attacking you. And they're attacking the thyroid glands ability to make thyroid hormone. When that happens, the doctor says, you've got Hashimoto's thyroiditis, meaning your thyroid isn't making the hormone very well. 
or the antibodies can attack kind of the, the shutoff system, so to speak, the regulatory system for the thyroid. And then you've got Graves' disease and your endocrinologist says, well, it looks to me like, you know, you've got too much thyroid hormone coasting around in your blood and that's causing all these symptoms for you. And I frankly think we need a lot more research on this. We clearly do. However, when we look at any kind of autoimmune disease, which thyroid diseases are, there's very, there's very often a pattern that somehow these antibodies that are created by your white blood cells as torpedoes to knock out a virus or knock out a bacterium, what's causing them to arise? And we've seen this from so many autoimmune conditions that food antigens can cause this to arise. So that suggests that maybe if I'm not eating dairy and not getting dairy proteins, maybe I wouldn't react to them or I'm not having meat proteins, maybe I wouldn't react to those. And picking on those two particular food groups is a good idea because in the Adventist Health Study 2, researchers found that people who, people who consume a lot of dairy um, have more, more thyroid disease. People who avoid dairy and meat have less. And when it comes to hyperthyroidism, people who avoid animal products altogether have much less risk of hyperthyroidism compared to people who indulge in meat and dairy. But I have yet to see a randomized trial where you take people who are hyperthyroid, for example, or hypothyroid, and put them on a healthy plant-based diet to see if they get better. I, I really don't know if they would, but um, there's, um, there's a lot of anecdotal cases where people, people do yeah. great. Yeah, no, I'm I'm one of those anecdotal cases. So I was diagnosed 27 years ago with hypothyroidism Hashimoto's at the birth of my second child. And uh, 11 years ago or 12 years ago when I went plant-based, my and my thyroid, my dosage of levothyroxine had escalating doses over the years and um, didn't think that my thyroid would get better. Like it didn't even dawn on me. That was a potential. I just literally went plant-based overnight. And within the first year, I started having symptoms of hyperthyroidism. And my TSH was zero. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? So I ended up having to lower my dose <clears throat> and continued. And I've seen patients, many patients improve. But getting back to the iodine uh, as well, I've had some patients who go very strict SOS-free plant-based diet, pull out all you know salt and no iodized salt and don't think about the iodine components and end up being hypothyroid. We test a 24-hour urine iodine and sure enough, they're low. We reintroduce some, be it a supplement or half a teaspoon of iodized salt, whatever, and uh, they get better. So yeah, there's absolutely places for that. But I, I had been hypothyroid for 15 years and got better because the only thing I changed was my plant-based diet, like nothing else changed. So anyway, I, I definitely think that would be a really cool study. Um, but uh, yeah, that's cool. That's amazing. Um, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a neat thing that you mentioned because there are people who will run low um, in iodine because it, it's just not something you think about. People don't mm -hmm. really talk about it very much. And, um, and, and I think it's important for people to be attentive to it, but it's also such an easy thing. I mean, it, it, let's say you just decide, well, I'll take a supplement. Every health food store, every drugstore, they all have it. And, and you can take it, it costs you, cost you pennies or... You know, we can um, do what I never did growing up in Fargo, North Dakota, and that's acquire a taste for seaweed, um, which <laughs> I don't care where you live. If you're in Japan, everybody, I don't care where you are in Japan, there is no like 
iodine deficiency there. <laughs> you know, there just isn't. But if you're right. in Omaha, it's a whole different story. Right. Well, I grew up in the deserts of New Mexico and definitely fish was not my uh, thing. And I'm still not a, a real keen taste of it. So I, I use some iodized salts regularly. Yeah. Um, well, but, I'm not uh, recommending fish. You know, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, well, the, the nori, the, the fishy taste, right? The fishy the, taste. The yeah, seaweed. exactly. Yeah, that that's a yeah, I never liked that fishy taste. So um, even like the sushi, like we have veggie sushi here for the family, but I I don't really particularly care for it. So <laughs> um, it's just my preference. Um, but going back to your the diabetes, what have you found for, you know, because I feel like there are stages and just curious what you've seen in your research. So you have the pre-diabetes, you have folks who've had maybe type two diabetes for you know less than eight, 10 years, somewhere in there. Um, and then you have these folks that have gone on to develop type two diabetes for 10, 20, 30, 40, you know, long-term and they come in. What have you found as far as dietary interventions, um, any successful things? Are there's particular food groups you encourage people to consume in the very beginning? Like, how do you, uh, get people started or do you just like eat more plants like what is what is the best method to move forward yeah oh what a great question Laurie um you know there are different ways of approaching this and um some people will have the idea that maybe asking well, well first of all maybe we should back up and just maybe mention what the model is um uh, yeah. we do not say that diabetes is related to having sugar or soda or bread or potatoes or carbohydrates in general because that's not the cause of it you know, type, although that's very much in people's minds, but type two diabetes begins as insulin resistance. And we know what causes insulin resistance. It's caused by the buildup of microscopic fat particles inside your muscle cells and in your liver cells. And that comes from food. So you can be a 17 year old kid in high school picking up your chicken nuggets or your pepperoni pizza and the fat from those foods gets into your bloodstream and passes into your muscle cells. And once it does, then insulin just can't make that muscle cell do its thing anymore. What Insulin is supposed to open that muscle cell to allow glucose inside. Mm -hmm. But when the cells are filled with fat, they just, insulin doesn't respond. So if I'm gonna stop insulin resistance, I've got to tackle, I've got to get that fat out of the cell. And we proved a long time ago that on a low fat vegan diet, there's, I mean, there's no animal fat in it at all. And if we keep the vegetable oils low, you can put a person in a magnetic resonance scanner, you do magnetic resonance spectroscopy, and you can measure the fat in their muscles. And then you put them on a low fat vegan diet and that fat starts to dissipate very rapidly. And as it does, their insulin sensitivity starts to rebound. So if a person is now into diabetes, that's our model. So a person will come in and we'll explain this to them, which doesn't take long. It takes maybe three minutes. And so that's what I ask our doctors here to do is talk for three minutes. They don't have to be the coach. They don't have to be a, the lecturer. They just have to explain what I just explained. And then the model is then you hand off the patient to the dietitian, who sits down with the patient and his reluctant spouse and says, okay, now we're going to talk about what this diet would, would consist of. So what are you eating for breakfast now? And what do you have for lunch now? What do you have for dinner? Where, where do you go when you eat out at a, at a restaurant? And they go through all these things and they figure out what their options are gonna be. And so the assignment for the first week is usually to say, 
Um, think about foods you would have if you were going to avoid all animal products and if we're going to keep oils really low. And we give the patient a piece of paper and say, come back in a week. And uh, I want to see a big, long list of all the things that you would eat um, that you would actually like. And you've got seven days to test them out, try them, see what you, see what you like. You don't have to go vegan, but you've got to like, try these foods. And people have a million possibilities. They come back in a week with, okay, I could have oatmeal with cinnamon raisins. I could make pancakes, but just leave out the, the butter. And you know, I could have this and that and the other thing. They got a huge long list. Um, and then we say, this is great. Now let's do this for the next three weeks. Let's just do it all vegan all the time. And that's easy now because frankly, three weeks is not very long. And secondly, they've already got their list and they know which foods they like. And it seems like totally possible. And at the end of that time, their blood sugars will come down um, and they're feeling better and their digestion improves and all these things get better. And the reason I do it that way, rather than kind of say, just eat more vegetables or, or more fruits, or, you know, I'm going to meet you where you're, where you live. I'm going to, I'm going to be really slow with this. We're going to be gradual. That's in my view. I don't want to do that. I want to cure that patient. I want them to feel better now. And so in this, it, if I say, take the skin off your chicken and try to avoid the meat, they're not going to feel much better. And they're going to think uh -huh. the diet doesn't work. So it's like if the patient comes in and they've got a raging infection and they need an antibiotic three times a day, I don't say take this once a day. You might feel better. I say, well, I want to cure you now um, mm -hmm. because there is nothing like regaining your health to reward you for what you just did. So that's mm -hmm. what we do. And we got different variations of the theme. Sometimes we'll say, okay, for the first week, let's just do breakfast. And then the second week, We'll do, we'll add lunch and dinner. There's different ways, but we want to get it. We want to cure them fast or, or at least have them see big improvements really fast. And that, that makes people really engage in a good way. And then the other thing is, is you have to follow up because people have questions. They got problems, they got issues. Um, they're always solvable. It's never big, but you know, my teenage son makes fun of me or, um, or more often, my teenage son eats all the vegan food that I'm cooking, and I, I don't have to for me, or whatever the case may be. So we have you have to have some kind of weekly follow up, and it, and the best thing is to do a weekly class mm -hmm. where everybody can get together and just talk about their issues. And you know, it's it's it, it frankly, it's great for the patients, but it's great for the physicians because instead of physicians feeling the way doctors do nowadays, which is I'm in an assembly line handing out medicines and nobody's getting better, stop. Let's do something where you're collaborating. The patients are working with you and they love it. And you're getting the patients off medicines, off of procedures, off of all of these things that are expensive and tedious and helping people to feel good again. Mm, that's perfect. So definitely the insulin resistance happens very quickly. I think my first indication of how quickly is when I first went to a plant-based diet, started talking to patients about it before I truly understood how to counsel patients. You know, 11 years ago, there were limited, yours was one of the sites that I first found. Dr. Mandugal had a few things to help doctors, but um, it was a little different story back then. But I had a patient come off 60 units of insulin in 72 hours. So I was like, okay, Lori, <laughs> I really <laughs> yeah. need to be paying attention to this. Um, but you know, the, the same holds true for type ones, if you could speak to granted, they're a much smaller subset of diabetes, but they have insulin resistance as well. And I've seen 
quite a bit of improvement there. Could you speak to how this would help a type one diabetic? Because maybe I know patients have count, been counseled by in, even endocrinologists. So like, oh, you can eat whatever you want. Just give yourself more insulin. Makes right. my heart hurt, but um, it's common advice. So could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, we need to do a total 180 on type one as well. Um, yeah. Type one diabetes, of course, means that your pancreas isn't making insulin like it's supposed to. It's the, the, the beta cells have been killed off. And that's by an autoimmune reaction too. So note to self, are foods causing that? Okay, that's there's a lot of it, there's a lot of discussion on that, but parking that for the moment. Uh, once a person has had type one diabetes for a while, um, they're on insulin and they're, the insulin that they're injecting arrives at their muscle cells and their liver cells and it's gotta make it through that the, whatever fat is stored there too. So they have insulin resistance in many cases. And so what that means is when you adopt exactly the same diet as we're using for type two, vegan, meaning no animal products, keeping oils really low, what you discover is that people's insulin requirements start going down. Now they're gonna to continue to need some insulin if, if, they have, if they truly have type one, their pancreas isn't making it anymore. So they'll need to inject some, but the amount they'll need will, will go way down. So that's great. The other thing that's great is you have just put a person on the safest diet because what kills a person with type one is not a high blood sugar or a low blood sugar. And what kills a person with type two is not a high or low blood sugar. What kills them is cardiovascular disease. Their arteries are being attacked by this disease. So you do not want a drop of cholesterol in their, in their diet. You don't want any animal fat in there. You wanna baby the arteries to their heart or to their brain or to their kidneys. Um, and that same diet that helps their blood sugar to get under better control because it's taking the fat out of their cells. That same diet brings their cholesterol down, it brings their blood pressure down, and it really is the kindest thing that you can do to your arteries. So getting away from the animal products is good. And then you wanna build in the fruits and the vegetables and the whole grains and the beans, the things that provide the protective nutrients that, that allow a person to live their best. And I gotta tell you, for people who have been struggling with diabetes and they've been, told they got to count every last carbohydrate gram and they got to watch you know their calories and this and that and the other thing it's a punishment and for type two they can pretty much throw all that stuff away um, when they go into low fat vegan diet for type one they very often still have to count um, count carbs to in order to calibrate their insulin doses but their life just got dramatically easier because they suddenly can eat carbohydrate they can eat a lot more mm -hmm. than they could eat before because their body can handle it the way it's supposed to and their insulin doses go down and they're able to live again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite patients I've been taking care of for four years, he was four years old, type one. His uh, endocrinologist had put them on a keto type diet. Mom reached out and now he's eight and his A1Cs have consistently been under six between 5.8, uh, 6.2 at the highest. So, and they do great, um, even through growth spurts <laughs> and everything. So that's, it's, it's an amazing thing. I do have a question is I've seen, um, quite a few interesting cases where I'll have someone who had what they presume to be a type two, they go to a whole food plant-based diet, they're thin, they're very compliant. And we find, we check a C-peptide and it's actually low. So they're kind of this latent autoimmune diabetes onset in adults. And I've, I've, 
secured quite a little following of these guys. So I'm curious what your, um, if you've had any research or any experience with those guys, um, they're not a large number, but it's certainly, an, I don't know if they just search us up because they're like, hey, I'm not getting better. I'm doing everything right. Um, any, any thoughts on on those as well? They're they're interesting how they come about, but. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you, you think it right. Um, when you have, when you have a person and you're using uh, a completely low fat vegan diet, and they're just not really responding to it very well. It is an important thing to um, look and see if they're still making insulin, um, because there's some people who who are you know who are not, um, mm -hmm. and then you can have a discussion about how you label them and what the diagnosis really ought to be. But it's important to to do that work. The other thing I would mm -hmm. say is that when a person has had type two for a long period of time. Um, 18, 20 years, 25 years, their poor pancreas has gotten beaten up a bit. Um, and so they may not do as well as a person who was diagnosed six months ago. That's possible. Um, but you don't know. You, you, you never know in advance. So you give everybody the very best diet and you just see how, how they do. And I got to tell you, I will never forget a case. It was a man who was pretty thin um active but he had had diabetes for 18 years and he had had not just diabetes and he was on high doses of insulin but he had neuropathy and i remember him telling me you know i go to i lie down at night and i can't i can't let the sheets touch my feet because just that touch is so painful and when you talk to people who have diabetic neuropathy they know that life is not going to get better for them um, it's pins and needles, or it's stabbing pain, or whatever, or numbness, or a combination of these things. Anyway, so he, he began the low-fat vegan diet as part of a research study. And after, it was maybe four months or so into the study, he said to me, Dr. Barnard, my neuropathy, it's amazing, my neuropathy's gone. And I said, well, you know, you've done really well on your diet, you've followed it very well, and, and um and I'm not surprised that your neuropathy might actually have improved a bit. He said, that isn't what I said. <laughs> he said, my neuropathy is gone. Mm -hmm. And I said, wait a minute, your neuropathy is gone. And I, you know, I remember, I don't know what your experience has been, Lori, but, you know, these medications that people will hand out for diabetic neuropathy and they're, they're advertised on television. Mm -hmm. In my clinical experience, they have not done the job. Mm -mm. Um, and when you're counseling a patient with neuropathy and they're looking at these pills you prescribe saying, why that, you know, what is this about to have this man say it was gone? I thought that was just too much. I mean, that's just astounding. So I, I rounded up a, Next clinical based trial. on him. I, I did a new <laughs> clinical trial. I brought in, I brought in 34 people. Um, awesome. I mean, luckily here at the physician's committee, we have some resources and some flexibility. So we brought in 34 people who had painful diabetic neuropathy. And what we did is that we had one group follow this diet that we've been describing and another group just take B12. Both groups got supplemental B12, but the control group got only B12. Now that's important because you need B12 for good nerve function. And I wanted to see, was that the issue? Um, and by and large, B12 is good, but man, it's no cure for neuropathy, for diabetic neuropathy. Um, but the people who went on this diet, number one, it was an 18 week study. And what we found is that number one, that they felt better. They would say, yeah, I'm feeling better. I, I will never forget, I had one guy who was a musician and he said he had um, neuropathy in his fingers. 
And he said, after two or three songs, I, I can't play anymore. I got to rest. I got to shake my hands out. But he said, you know, he came back in. This is maybe week three, four, five in the study. He said, I can play again. Um, mm. And then about three weeks after that, he came in and he said, and my erectile dysfunction is gone. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> okay, I got it. You know, this is good. Um, but what we what we discovered is is they they subjectively felt better. But then you also need to see objectively, is there something, is this really working? So there, there are tests where you can measure galvanic skin response, which is the fine nerves in your, say in the palm of your hand or in your feet, are they able to, to release perspiration or not? And so you get this test and you put your hands on these metal plates and you're just measuring, it's really simple. You're just measuring their galvanic, galvanic skin, skin response and you can see it changes. And it's a really cheap, non-invasive way of looking at changes in nerve function. So that's what we did. Now, other researchers are doing biopsies. And I mean, you don't want to do that. You know, it's much, yeah, seriously. Um, it's much better for you to actually just do these non-invasive tests. And in my experience, some people get better and others may not get very much better. Um, but you just have to, to try and just see. And you've always got the medications and stuff there if you want to use them. But I would always, for every patient, work on supporting them to get the junk out of their diet. And by junk, I mean all the dairy products, all the animal products, get rid of it, get the oils out and really be on as clean a diet as they possibly, possibly can be on because the rewards in so many cases are just immense. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And if anything, even those who don't necessarily get significantly better, you're halting the progression. So hopefully they won't have worsening of their disease and the and discomfort. But um, you kind of alluded to it earlier when we kind of spoke about type ones and dairy or uh, uh, animal products causing type one, what evidence there is to show in, um, is that actually an accurate statement that animal products or animal byproducts could actually cause a type one diabetes or increase risk? We know with type 1 diabetes that it's autoimmune, um, meaning somewhere antibodies have arisen in the body and they have attacked and destroyed the beta cells. Um, so those beta cells can't make insulin anymore. Um, and as with so many autoimmune conditions, food is suspect number one. Um, and it was in the New England Journal, I believe, in 19... I'm going to say 1991, maybe 1992, there's a huge study that looked at people just newly diagnosed, kids just newly diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And they found antibodies to dairy proteins in all these kids. Um, and other studies had pointed at dairy. And it's, it's a curious thing if you think about it. You know, the human body was not designed to have cow's milk proteins ingested. And in fact, Historically, this is quite a new thing. Um, it's dairying began, what, 10,000 years ago or so in, in Europe, and some might say parts of the Middle East, but that's like it. And it gradually took over. But in, say, Japan and, and much of um, Asian countries, uh, it's until recently, it was pretty much non-existent. So people have looked at the epidemiology of it, and they've looked at the biochemistry of it and said, think it's dairy. Um, now, that said, uh, we don't really have good randomized trials to see that that's the case. And, and there was a, a study called the TRIGGER study, um, which was a, a trial where kids were 
restricted in, in the ingestion of whole dairy pro, uh, proteins. They used a hydrolyzed protein. And the results initially looked good, but when they kept following these kids, the results kind of petered out as time went on, um, which the, the problematic thing was these kids really weren't off dairy. <laughs> they were just par partially off dairy for a short period of their lives. And in fact, they were getting dairy, but it was a cleaved dairy protein. So I've been, I've been really eager for researchers to not get discouraged, but to see if, if we can if we can prevent this disease, and, and I, this may sound really old fashioned, but I am guessing that if we could wave a magic wand and have every child be breastfed, that we might actually have less type one diabetes. Now that's an unpopular thing to say because there are some cases where breastfeeding is impossible, but there are a lot of, but there are a lot of cases where it could be possible. Um, it's, mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong, women need support for this. Women need a little help um, from mom or older sister or something like that. It can be pretty darn uncomfortable. It could feel awkward. But when you can make it work, it's a great thing for mom and for the baby. And you're giving the baby the proteins that did not come from a cow. They came from you. Um, and I am convinced that there are many, many benefits from that. And and rather than than force women to come back into the workplace and all the whatever the things that we're doing, now if there are ways that we can be understanding, and try to foster this process, I think it would be I think the world would be a little bit better place if we can if we can give women the support that they need. Mm -hmm. Even outside of breastfeeding, that would be phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, tell me about it. Yes. exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be amazing. Um, I guess we have a few more minutes. I had some questions regarding, curious on your stance on supplementation. Of course, for me, I'm always telling patients B12 is a non-negotiable. Anything else there that people should be mindful of and what do you typically counsel patients as you guys come through your doors at uh, the Bernard Clinic? Yeah, um, B12 is something that um, we, we recommend that everybody take a supplement. Now, it is true that if you look at the back of your cereal box, you'll see that some of them have B12 added or you look at nutritional yeast, they got B12 added. There's a lot of foods that have B12 added, but don't rely on that because you may not be eating those foods. So I, I encourage everybody to take a supplement of, I'll say hundred micrograms. Many stores don't stock something that low, but if they stock 200 or 500 micrograms or whatever, fine. Um, but we really push, push on it because I don't want a person to be on this fabulous diet, but somehow just have missed B12. It's the easiest thing in the world. Um, beyond that, I think vitamin D is sort of the next thing that, that comes to mind because it's not something that you need to get from food. You get it from the sun. Um, but our species had the bad judgment to leave Eastern Africa where there was lots of sunlight. And we moved to places like Fargo, where I grew up, <laughs> you know, where like there's for six months of the year, nobody's going out and getting much sun. Um, and so, um, you know, I think so. I, I, they're, they're, who knows the right answer to all these things? In fact, next year at ICNM, I think we're going to have a whole panel on debating what are the best supplemental supplementation guidelines. But my own mm. best guess is that everyone would probably do better to take vitamin D, about 2,000 IUs a day. I think it's probably a good amount. People can disagree with, with the amount, but I think that's a good idea. Um, and then beyond that, you know, sort of the big... Well, I, I don't su suggest that people do calcium supplementation. I think we should get calcium from green leafy vegetables, 
um, because they are neglected and they've got so many great things to offer. Um, the big question mark for a lot of people is omega-3. And there's a good argument for it, um, which is that some studies have suggested that people whose levels of DHA and EPA are low may be at higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. People can debate that, but, but people can assert that with some confidence. Um, then you can also look at studies where people have supplemented e um, DHA and EPA with fish oil or whatever, and suddenly you don't get much. <laughs> I mean, there is not a robust literature of benefit for much of anything from, from fish oil. So where it gets worse is that there have been a number of studies that showed that, that people who have higher levels of these omega-3s, for men, they have higher risk of prostate cancer. And at first we thought this was just a total fluke, but we kept seeing it in study after study after study. So we take it seriously, but I honestly don't know how this happens. I, I don't know why it is that supplementation could cause that to happen. You assume, well, maybe these, these uh, I mean, omega-3s are, are very fragile molecules. They oxidize really easily and maybe they're causing free radicals to form and that's triggering a cancer process. I don't know. But uh, a guy comes in and says, well, you know, my dad died of Alzheimer's. Uh, my, dad, my dad died of Alzheimer's and I don't want to get that, but he also had prostate cancer. I don't want to get that. You know, what do I do? And I don't think anyone has the answer to that. So yeah. what, what some people will do, I'm not necessarily arguing for it, but it's, it makes sense, is that people will, will test themselves. There are companies like Omega Quant, where you pay them 50 bucks or whatever it is. They'll send you a little card and you drop a little drop of blood on the thing. And two weeks later, they'll tell you what your EPA and DHA levels are. And if they're low, you can decide to supplement if you want. And luckily, the world has vegan DHA, um, which you can get online. And so you're not, you know, it's still vegan. But is that needed? Is that a good idea? I, th I think the jury is not quite back in the room on that. So, mm. so that, that's kind of where we are. Yeah, I, I agree on the omegas. And it's interesting because I interviewed a gentleman. He's been vegan 40 years or something. And he runs a, a clean nutrition supplement uh, company. But he he's a big fan of obviously getting you know plants to give you all of your uh, needed nutrients. But he was speaking to more recent research showing that DHA is actually stored in the tissue. So it's really hard to measure via serum tests. So hmm. um, yeah, he said like, upwards of five times what we thought was actually in the blood. And um, so it made me really rethink some things and then DHA can increase LDL. Um, yeah, so there, there is definitely some rethinking. I think the only place that I have some concerns is those who don't consume ALA rich foods for calories, people who are nut phobic. <laughs> of course, I'm always like walnuts and ground flax seeds. And so I'm always curious just asking you know, what you, what you have found or um, thought about, but it is, it is, it's, it is a very interesting thing to think about, but I thought I would just ask, since that's been kind of uh, one of my more recent conversations that really got a lot of questions. Um, I think there's fantastic. one more piece of this. I think there's one more piece of yeah. it as well. And people think about chia seeds and, um, and nuts as good sources of ALA and they are, but you know, the humble broccoli sprig um, if you send it to a lab, they'll say, you know, there's there's not much fat in, in broccoli or spinach or other green leafy vegetables, but it's maybe could be as much as 7% of calories, something like that. 
And then if you look at the proportion of the calories that is omega-3, it's really high. And mm -hmm. I suspect that what matters is not so much the absolute content of the fat that you're getting, as long as some small proportion of your diet is fat, 5%, 6%, 7%, something like that. So it's, I mean, it's almost impossible to get below that. Um, mm -hmm. I think what really matters is the proportion that might be from alpha-linolenic acid. And mm -hmm. for a lot of green leafy vegetables, it's really surprisingly high. So mm. my thought is, okay, what if we're eating these in generous quantities? Sort of the Caldwell Esselstyn wish list of green <laughs> leafy vegetables. You know, Essie will talk about all the green leafy vegetables you should be having, and he's right. So what right. you're getting is all the goodness of them, including a lot of ALA and not a lot of competing fats that are going to get in the way. So I'm, mm. I'm, I'm cheerleading for my green leafy vegetable friends as a good source mm -hmm. of ALA too. That's a really good point and something to consider uh, in counseling patients for sure. Absolutely. Well, I think this is phenomenal. Thank you for entertaining these questions and always, you know, providing wonderful answers. And I'm sure uh, many people will be excited to, to listen. Can you tell us a little bit about the Bernard Clinic? How can people find you? Of course, all the links and people are pretty much it, but what services do you offer for folks and um, how can they interact with you guys at the Bernard Clinic? Well, thank you for asking. Yeah, the Barnard Medical Center got started in what, 2015? And uh, our, our website is barnardmedical.org because uh, it's nonprofit, barnardmedical.org. And we do primary care. Uh, you can see an internist, you could see a nurse practitioner if you want, you could see our, a registered dietitian and, and um, Jim Loomis and Benita Roman, our, our internists were at, uh, at our, our conference uh, recently and spoke. And so they're, I mean, they're terrific. And uh, we do telemedicine and most of the United States is covered by our telemedicine network. So let's say a person says, well, I'm here in California and I don't want to come to Washington. Can I see you on telemedicine? The answer is absolutely. And we uh, do the same with uh, dietetic care. There are, sometimes a person has a perfectly competent doctor, except for the fact that the doctor doesn't have much clue about nutrition. And so our dietitian can, can see you and, and help you with, with that too. So um, that's what we do. Uh, it's a typical practice. We'll use medications and everything else if, uh, if we need it. But we, what we try to do is to help the patient to take me less medicine, have less procedures, less time in the hospital, um, and uh, to really get their, their diet in gear. Because when the patient comes in, we also see that kind of invisible in the room is their spouse, their kids, the other people with whom they will never share a metformin prescription, but with whom they do share dietary habits. And so if we can help that patient to eat in a better way, they're going to help everybody that they live with. And so that's, mm -hmm. we, we view that as part of our mission too. That's wonderful. I call it positive collateral damage. So basically <laughs> when the patient eats better, the everyone else gets better. So I counsel patients to like, if you have a spouse with diabetes or hypertension, please let them know that they're going to consume your food, that they need to be on guard for these things as well. So absolutely. And thank you, Dr. Bernard. And um, one last question that I'm sure we'll get is, do you accept insurance? um, yeah. via telemedicine or in person. Yeah, we, we do. We, we do. We, we take Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and the different, most insurance plans. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So yeah. excellent. Well, thank you so much again for your time. And we really appreciate you. Great. Great talking to you today.